You may remember back when Bishop Caggiano had Father Reggie Norman on to talk about the Black Catholic experience here in the diocese and in the United States. Well, today we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Shannon D. Williams, who wrote a book that dives deeply into the history of the Black Catholic experience in the U.S., specifically through the eyes of nuns and religious sisters. The book is called Subversive Habits, and this is a fascinating educational conversation up ahead. So keep your radio here at 1350 AM or 103.9 FM, or keep us on the Veritas mobile app on your phone. The app is available at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com. And if you're listening on podcast, please help us out by going to your podcast platform and giving us a five-star rating. And Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad, the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's always good to be, good to be with you, my friend. This close to Christmas, too, my goodness. Yes. Right? Yes. We're, we are getting there. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're getting there far too fast for my liking, but it is what it is. Right? <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> uh, the, the crazy thing is this time of year is... Um, Wonderful and reflective, but also probably like the busiest. Exhausting. It's the only word that comes. It's exhausting. I was yeah. at, a, at a, we had a day of prayer. I'm telling you all my problems. We were at a day of prayer, which was superb. Father Schweitzer gave some magnificent talks. And I'm fighting not falling asleep, not because he's not engaging. It's just that I'm exhausted. <laughs> but I'm saying, <laughs> what type of example am I showing the priests here? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, uh, I'm actually, we, we have a guest today, Excellency, and I'm mm -hmm. actually really, really excited mm -hmm. because this is a topic that we've touched on a little bit in the past, but we've never really mm -hmm. gotten to dive deeply into the way, you know, you and I have wanted to. Um, so I am going to go ahead and introduce her. Please. So we are uh, delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Shannon D. Williams. Uh, Dr. Williams is Associate Professor of History at the University of Dayton. She's an award-winning scholar of the African-American experience and Black Catholicism with research and teaching specializations in women's, religious, and, black, and the Black Freedom Movement history. Dr. Williams holds a BA in history with magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa honors from Agnes Scott College, a master's in Afro-American studies from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and a PhD in history from Rutgers University. She is really well educated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, she is the, the first black woman elected to the Executive Council of the American Catholic Historical Association. And Dr. Williams is a co-founder um, of the Fleming Morrow Endowment in African-American History at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. In 2020, Dr. Williams also submitted successful proposals to establish the Mother Mary Lang Lecture in Black Catholic History at Villanova and the Cyprian Davis OSB Prize 
through the American Catholic Historical Association and the Kushwa Center for the Study of American Catholicism. What a resume. What credentials. Dr. Williams, welcome to Let Me Be Frank. Oh, goodness. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor to be with you today. Well, thank you, Dr. Williams. And we, we have the opportunity to explore some, some really important topics that, unfortunately, many uh, Catholics have not really spent much time reflecting on. So this, this, this is a great opportunity. So I thank you for being with us. <clears throat> so may I just, as I always do, the guests that come, to the extent that they are um, comfortable, what what has your journey of faith been like? What, 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 tell us about Dr. Williams through the eyes of faith. Thank you so much for that question. Um, I am a cradle Catholic. I was born into the Catholic Church. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, in the Diocese of Memphis. Um, and my journey has always been one of knowing that I am a Catholic, not necessarily knowing what that meant to also be an African-American Catholic, um, but simply growing up, going to mass every Sunday, participating um, in religious education on Wednesday nights, and then it became sort of Sunday mornings. But being of faith, but not necessarily knowing the history behind that faith, mm -hmm. if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. Um, my mother is Catholic. My father was Protestant, but my mother raised my sister and I Catholic. And we were the only Catholics in our family. Everyone else was Protestant. Wow. I knew my mother's journey. My mother was educated in the Catholic schools of Savannah, Georgia. My grandparents who were Protestant put all of their children in the Catholic schools of Savannah, Georgia to be able to escape the underfunded and segregated nature, mm -hmm. um, segregated underfunding of the public school system. And they had more funds. And so they put their children in. And my mother was the only one of her siblings to convert, which is how I became Catholic. Wow. So I grew up thinking that being Catholic and black and Catholic was an anomaly um, just because of my own family story. And I must say that even growing up in the suburbs of Memphis, Tennessee, in a parish where there were only a handful of African-American families, very small number, um, I just thought that we were anomalies. Um, that actually didn't change when Memphis got its first African-American bishop and bishop uh, James Terry Stibe. Um, so it was funny that I knew that there were black priests because I had a black bishop, but it never occurred to me to sort of go beyond mm -hmm. that journey. What was interesting is when I, even before I began researching for my book, um, which provides the first full history of black Catholic sisters in the United States, I was in a certain ways thinking about leaving the church, not leaving my faith in God, um, but simply struggling to find what I thought was a complete understanding of, of my faithfulness um, within the church. I was struggling with some issues and not necessarily wanting to leave the church, but not necessarily seeing myself fully reflected um, in the teachings of my church and in the practices of my church. And then I think what we can say is that God intervened in my life um, in a very powerful way. Um, I stumbled upon an article announcing the formation of this organization of Black Catholic nuns um, that had been established in the wake of the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. And that really, in certain ways, I don't want to say that it revitalized my faith, but it certainly kept me from leaving the church in a moment, in that, re that first real test of, of my membership in the church. Um, and when I began 
researching the history of these women who founded this organization and started collecting their histories and beginning to realize that there was this brilliant, beautiful, rich tradition of, of Catholicism that I was a part of, but didn't know, nece- didn't necessarily know the history of, uh, that's where I am today in my faith. Um, I was born Catholic. I stay Catholic. Um, but thankfully I know, well, I shouldn't say, I know that I stay Catholic now because I have a fuller understanding of what it means to be wow. Catholic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What a remarkable testimony. Huh? You alluded to the fact that when you were growing up, um, the public schools were segregated and underfunded. What were the Catholic schools like in the in that in those days? <clears throat> so certainly for my mother's story, um, that was why. And and what we have to remember is that even in the United States, even though we know that the first black articulation of Christianity in the land area that becomes the United States is Catholicism, um, that the numbers of black Catholics in the United States have been relatively small in comparison to Latin America, the Caribbean, um, and to a certain extent, Canada as well. But just because those numbers have been relatively small, um, and I do say relatively, um, we do know that large numbers of African-Americans, whether they are Catholic or not, have always entrusted the Catholic Church with the education of their children. Um, We know that African-American Catholics and African-Americans educated in Catholic schools have a higher educational success rate than any other group in the nation. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is this history that is there. So these connections to the African-American community through education um, have always been key. And so we know that Catholic schools also served as the primary sites of evangelization in the African-American community. Mm -hmm. Now, that does not mean that the Catholic educational system was not segregated, but simply um, in spaces where state legislatures would not provide equitable or even any funding to the African-American community, um, Catholic schools oftentimes provided that alternative to African-American families Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and certainly African-American Catholic families who were committed to upholding their canonical duty to ensure a Christian and Catholic education Mm -hmm. of their children. Mm -hmm. So that's a piece of that story. My mother comes as a result of those Catholic schools that are being established in Savannah, Georgia, which is one of the cradles of of American Catholicism and specifically Mm -hmm. also African-American Catholicism and her being put into those schools um, and then she just being one of those who converted. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there is that history. Now, for myself, um, I was not actually educated in Catholic schools. My mother put us in public schools, but I was raised Catholic. And that's why I went to <laughs> PRE uh, <laughs> all throughout <laughs> my, my, my education, my formal education before college. Wow. You know, it's, it's interesting. In the United States because of the history of the church in the United States with many immigrant groups coming from Europe, we see the church, or it's generally kind of seen as a European church, right? But, but in the current world, the fastest growing part of the church is in Africa. Right. Right. And most Catholics don't realize that. Right. It, 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 right. Am I, am I correct in that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think what I would say is, you know, what we are seeing, right, especially with the church's growth in the global south, especially in, in, on the African continent, um, we're seeing what some people can see as sort of this great um, diversification, I would say, of the, of, the, of the faithful, right, or just recognizing that the church is truly becoming, you know, its universal self. You know, what, what my book and my research reveals, though, is that that history has always been with us, mm-hmm. um, 
that there have always been two transatlantic stories of American Catholicism, right? One that begins in Europe, but another one that begins with African descended people who are living in Europe in the 15th century, but also those who come, um, unfortunately, as a result of the transatlantic slave right. trade. And right. that transatlantic slave, that transnational story of American Catholicism that begins in Africa is still ongoing. And now when we see with the explosive growth of the Catholic Church on the African continent, that is going to continue to come. But I think what was really striking for me when we look at, for example, the history of black Catholic nuns in the United States, so many of these women could trace their lineage to the earliest days of the church and to both the African and European roots of that church, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that those roots are the same. The African roots of the American Catholic Church are mm -hmm. just as old as the European mm -hmm. roots of the Catholic mm -hmm. Church. For example, we remember that our cradles are not in the Northeast, but in the South, in Florida, in Maryland, in Kentucky. Louisiana and Missouri. And in those spaces, the African-American Catholic community is very large. For example, at the turn of the 19th century in Louisiana, in New Orleans, the church is a black woman dominated church. We also have to really reckon with the, the fact that it is a free African descended woman born in Seville, Spain named Luisa de Abrega, who is the first person to get married in the land area that becomes uh, the United States. She is Catholic. And in 1565, she marries a Spanish soldier named Miguel Rodriguez. This is the first Christian marriage that takes place in the land area that becomes the United States. Wow. So literally, Christian marriage is inaugurated in what becomes the United States by a free Black Catholic woman and a Spanish um, uh, soldier. And so that reminds us again that the African foundations of American Catholicism um, are just as old as the European foundations. Uh -huh. And so many of the men and women who go into religious life in the U.S. Catholic Church are descendants of both those free and enslaved Black Catholics, as well as free European Catholics, uh -huh. that really remind us that our church has actually always been racially and ethnically diverse in the United States. Whether or not we've actually told all of those stories um, is is what, you know, what I sort of am asking us and certainly what my book asks of us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you see, again, the whole idea, first of all, I did not know that. So thank you. I did not know that. Right? And the fact that telling the stories is so essential to filling in the picture, right? Are there other stories you could share with us? Can I impose? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what's, what's so important and what's so beautiful, even if it's painful, but beautiful about Black Catholic history is that because so much of that history begins in this history of colonialism and slavery, but because people are Catholic, we actually have records for these people. They have to be baptized. They have to be confirmed. Their marriages are in our church's records. So that record of Luisa de Abrega, her records are in the diocese, the archives of the Diocese of St. Augustine, which is our oldest church. So I'll give you another example. Um, she is a figure that appears in my book, she is a member of the Oblate Sisters of Providence, which are the nation's and the modern world's first Roman Catholic sisterhood, freely open to African-descended women and girls. What's remarkable about the U.S. story and the U.S. Catholic story is that it is the United States that becomes home to the modern world's first Roman Catholic sisterhoods, freely open to African-descended women and girls. If we look at the numbers, it shouldn't have been the United States. It should have been Brazil where we have the largest black Catholic population. This is the, that's where the, lo the, lo the largest numbers of people who were taken as a result of the transatlantic slave trade end up in Brazil. Mm 
And yet Brazil doesn't get its first Roman Catholic sisterhood freely open to African descended women and girls until 1928. That's almost a century after the Oblate Sisters of Providence hmm. are founded in Baltimore in 1829. And one of their earliest members is a young woman named uh, Anne-Marie Beecraft. Her name has come back to us in recent years as a part of Georgetown University's efforts to make reparation for its slaveholding past. The university renamed one of their halls that was named after a Jesuit who was involved in that infamous sale from the 19th century after Anne-Marie Beecraft. And the students who were involved in that effort found her name because she founded one of um, the earliest Black schools in Washington, D.C., but also the first Black Catholic school in Washington, D.C. She is actually mentioned in the, national, the first National Report on Education as, quote, one of the most remarkable uh, young colored girls of her time and perhaps of any time, was noted for her remarkable beauty, intelligence, her piety, etc., um, what's also significant is that she becomes an oblate sister of Providence because none of the communities in Washington, D.C. will accept her because of her, her background, her racial background. Um, and then she dies as a young, yet a young age. But her father was a man named William B. Craft. Now, what we know from the historical record is that William B. Craft was free. He was born on the plantation of Charles Carroll of Carrollton, who is oh. the only Catholic signer of the Declaration mm -hmm. of Independence, mm -hmm. who is cousin to Bishop John Carroll. He is also one of the earliest benefactors of the early U.S. American church because he is also one of Maryland's largest enslavers. What we know from the historical record is that William, Anne's father, was the natural son of Charles Carroll of Carrollton and a free woman of color who worked in his household. Oh, that wow. makes Anne Marie Beecraft his granddaughter. And that helps us to understand how she was able to establish her school for free black Catholic girls right across the street from the visitation monastery and right around the corner from the Jesuits, Georgetown College, because she also received support from the sisters and the Jesuits. And one must have to we have to ask ourselves, she's in the midst of this slaveholding elite um, and she has founded the school. And how does she get this support? But what this also tells us is that. She is the only Catholic sister that we have on record who has a literal birthright and blood right through the Carroll family to the early American church and the early nation. How do we not know her name? Because her parents are actually buried on the campus of Georgetown. They were notable free black Catholics. They were, they, when they died, it was noted in both the African-American and the white American newspapers. They were known for their piety, how much they had given um, and through their daughter and through their children, how much they had given to the church and how much they had given to the African-American community. And I would say Anne Marie is not about, uh, an anomaly. So many early African-American sisters, but also some that are still with us are still descendants of these free and enslaved Catholics who built the early church. They've always been with us. The records are there. And so the question mm -hmm. that we have to ask ourselves is, why have so many people chosen to exclude them from our understanding of the American Catholic experience? They were not excluded during their lifetimes. So the question, of course, is what does that mean for those who have narrated these stories and they've decided to erase what has been a foundational racial and ethnic diversity of our American right. church. Right. They've impoverished the church by erasing it. Absolutely. Is what they have done. Is what they have done. So your book is about the experience of African-American black sisters 
in the United States. So tell us some other things that you have learned from your research, because I find all of this extremely fascinating. What else can you teach us? (laughs) Oh, goodness. So I must say, again, um, although I'm a Black Catholic woman, I knew very little Black Catholic history, even less Black Catholic women's history. I had never seen a Black nun before. And in fact, the only Black sister that I knew at the time was Sister Mary Clarence, who was the fictional character played by Whoopi Goldberg in the Sister Act film franchise. Um, And so what my book does is to tell the story of what I consider to be the story of America's real Sister Act. This Mm -hmm. is a story of how generations of devout Black Catholic women and girls fought against discrimination to be able to answer God's call on their lives and minister as consecrated women religious uh, in the American Catholic Church. Um, This is a story um, of women who have, who unfortunately had to confront the anti-Black admissions policies of our nation's earliest European and white American communities. Women whose vocations uh, were denied, not because they lacked piety, not because they lacked intelligence, not because they lacked commitment, but solely on the basis of race, which was a violation of our church law. Mm -hmm. These were women who understood that racism had no place within the universal Catholic church. These were women whose parents and grandparents in the face of discrimination, in the face of, you know, the sins of racism and exclusion through colonialism, slavery and segregation said, no, we will never surrender our church to people who cannot affirm the life and dignity of every single human being. And so this in many ways is one, a testimony of what I consider to be tenacious faithfulness in the face of unholy discrimination, but also a forgotten chapter in the long African-American struggle for freedom, justice, and human dignity. Um, We know that there have been over 2,500 African-descended women and girls who we know have entered religious life in the United States. Overwhelmingly, they became members of the nation's historically Black sisterhoods. Over 75% of these women joined the Black sisterhoods without the formation of Black sisterhoods that were formed in reaction and in response to these anti-Black admissions uh, policies. We would not have Black women's religious life. What is also significant about the African-American sisterhoods is that they were always multi-ethnic and multilingual communities because they were not simply preserving the vocations of black women and girls who were denied admission into communities in the United States. But we know that many of their members came from Canada. They came from Latin America and they came from the Caribbean as well because the communities there would not take African descended women either or they would only allow them to go to sort of form these very unequal communities. I think one way to sort of think about the America's Real Sister Act is to sort of tell their stories through the three African-American sisters currently on the road to sainthood within our church. That is now venerable Mother Mary Lang, who was the foundress of the Oblate Sisters of Providence in Baltimore, Maryland in 1829. Venerable Henriette DeLille, who was the foundress of the Sisters of the Holy Family in New Orleans, Louisiana in 1842. And sister and servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman, um, who... Mm -hmm. um, desegregated the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration as a 15-year-old in the 1950s and then went on to have a very illustrious career as a champion of the intellectual um, and cultural gifts of the African-American Catholic community, perhaps most famously in her 1989 address to the the U.S. bishops. Um, Yes, 
And so what's really amazing about these three women's stories is that in many ways, they help us to chart this epic journey of Black sisters in the United States with the two foundresses of the Black sisterhoods. And then also in the case of Sister Thea Bowman, because she in many ways is representative of those African-American women and girls who are finally able to desegregate white communities really after World War II. Um, these are women who are pioneering religious figures, leaders, educators, nurses, teachers, principals, desegregation, foot soldiers, um, theologian, theologians, but literally representative of a community that fought to make their church truly Catholic and their nation truly democratic. Um, so one thing that I would say um, when we talk about Catholic education in the African-American community, even though Black sisters never make up even more than one half of 1% of the national sister population for most of their history in the United States. They are responsible. They are the progenitors of Black Catholic education in the United States. But they also serve as mentors to many of the nation's earliest African-American priests. Because long before there were Black priests in the United States, there were Black sisters. And they understood mm. that their successes would help to mitigate some of the opposition to the ordination of Black men to the priesthood. Mm -hmm. And so there's really no way to talk about the Black Catholic community without talking about the leadership um, and faithfulness um, mm -hmm. and really mm -hmm. sort of the, hero the Herculean efforts and heroic mm -hmm. efforts of, of, of these Black sisterhoods. Mm -hmm. I was I was wondering, Dr. Williams, for the established congregations that had closed the door to women of African descent to become religious in there, when did all of that end? When did that finally get resolved? So it really World War II is an important turning point. So I, I wanna say that there are I do wanna say that there are examples of African descended women um, in uh, historically white communities prior to World War II. In most cases, these are women who are racially ambiguous, um, who have mm -hmm. European, have a European parent. Mm -hmm. and, and what we know is that European and white American sisterhoods would take non-Black women, right? So they would take women who are non, or who are Latina, who are Native American, also women of Asian descent. And so the bar was Blackness. And so if an African-American woman was racially ambiguous, she didn't necessarily need to be able to pass for white to be able to go into a community. She just needed to be able to pass for something else. And so and that doesn't mean that other sisters of color were not were fully accepted in those communities. Many of those women were only allowed to serve in a domestic role. They were not sometimes not educated by those communities, but they at least could get in. Blackness became the bar. Um, so, you know, we do have some examples of so African descended women who are leading communities in the 19th century mm -hmm. who are passing for white, perhaps most notably um, um, uh, Mother Teresa Maxis Duchman, who was the founders of the Sister Servants of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the IHM sisters. Um, the Sisters of Charity of New York had an early black superior who passed for white. And we've just found wow. out that... Um, there's another community in Oregon they've just found out. Found they had, I guess they had always suspected, and I guess my book has made people more comfortable to go look now. Yes, <laughs> um, yes, Look of into course. it. Um, so we do have those examples, but it's really, it's really after 1945, and it's really with the promulgation of the doctor. Um, Oh, goodness, the mystical body of Christ um, mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. the Vatican. Sort of this idea that these distinctions can no longer stand. And so clearly within the U.S. church, there are people who are saying, see this right here. This means that these policies, these anti-black admissions policies, the color line has to fall within the church. And so that is used by the members of the African-American Catholic community, 
but also by a small but growing number of white Catholics who are committed to ending the color line within the church to use that. So really 1945. Now, that does not mean that all communities uh, embrace that. Um, Sort of that fight to enter those communities was tenuous. Some communities resisted at every level. And there are many communities that have never accepted a U.S. born black woman. What they would sometimes do is that they would take African descended women born outside of the United States. And Mm. that would be the way. And so what's really interesting, that happens in the United States. But then the European communities would take U.S. born black women, but they would not take the black women from their colonies. And so it creates this division. Yeah. um, What's the sense of that? I think on the one hand, um, we certainly know that so many U.S. black Catholic women who go into religious life, they are coming as the embodiments of that history, right, of the church's history, unresolved histories of colonialism, slavery, and segregation within their own boundaries. So it's why European communities are Mm. more comfortable taking U.S.-born Black women because they're not going to confront that that ongoing history of colonialism, whether it is in Africa, whether it is other parts of the global South. And so it's a it's a a very painful, but it's but it's. I don't want to say that that's something that only the Catholic Church is doing, right? Like, that is very much a policy of maintenance of colonialism and all of those things. Right. But it's really after World War II. Um, And, but again, there are communities that have never had a U.S. born Black member, or they've only had one. Because we also know that some communities had sort of quotas that they would only take one or two. And that was a way to sort of withstand the critique that they did not take women of color but also to ensure that their ranks never fully integrated or wow. truly integrated. Wow. Dr. Williams, we have to take a break, I think, but don't really what you are teaching is, is amazing. Oh goodness. Right? Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's, it's so uh, complex, the history. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So um, this is, let me be frank on the Veritas Catholic network. His excellency is speaking with Dr. Shannon Williams, the author of the book, subversive habits, the first full history of black Catholic nuns in the U.S. And we will be right back on the other side of the break. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450. 
and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Shannon Williams, author of the book Subversive Habits, about the history of black Catholics in the U.S., and specifically women who became religious sisters. And I'll turn it over to you, Excellency. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Dr. Williams, in our little break, I mentioned that this is I find this to be absolutely fascinating and very educative for me personally, because a lot of what you're sharing... I can confess my ignorance, I was not aware of. And and so what my heart tells me now is as a bishop, I want everyone to know this um, because it, it's it's who we are. That's, that is who the church is. So any recommendations, thoughts, strategies? You know, for me, um, education is always the key. Um, what, what I recognize is this history has not been disseminated for lack of uh, uh, materials being able to document this, right? Because they are members <laughs> of the Catholic Church, they are, there is a host of records in terms of baptismal records, confirmation records, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Because, so, mm-hmm. because most Black sisters were teachers, they have also mm-hmm. let, left us a traditional record, right? They are principals mm-hmm. of school. So we have all of this record. We have all of these records. The two oldest African-American sisterhoods have rich archives. They're some of the most important archives that we have in American Catholic history. So for me, the question, of course, is how do we teach this history? How do we require teaching the history of the full and complete story of the U.S. Catholic Church within our Mm -hmm. institutions? One way is to always sort of go through uh, the saints. Um, We have six African-Americans currently on the road to sainthood within our church. Their stories embody the fundamental truth that Black history is and always has been Catholic history within our boundaries um, and vice versa. And so one easy way to start is to make sure that all, all Catholic students, uh, all children enrolled in Catholic schools are learning about these six African-American, these six extraordinary African-American Catholics mm-hmm. on the road to sainthood. I think the other piece um, is to sort of think about every diocese and archdiocese, something that I have encouraged uh, when I do my talks, every archdiocese and diocese in the country to begin to launch oral history projects within their respective communities. Um, And not just for the African-American Catholic community, but this is something that I think if we use the model of the African-American Catholic community, um, we can do this for all all of our communities. Mm -hmm. Um, Oral history is absolutely essential, um, but we are losing so many people, especially from the African-American Catholic community, as parishes close or merge, a lot of that history is lost. And so one way to think about this is in archdiocese and diocese, are you celebrating Black Catholic History Month? Uh, that's every November. Um, what does that mean to bring in a scholar of African-American Catholic history, an African-American priest or an African-American sister to host a lecture, to tell their stories, to tell that history? That becomes a way of institutionalizing and celebrating this rich history of the Black Catholic community um, on the parish level. We want parishes to celebrate Black Catholic history, to bring in speakers who come from the African-American Catholic community to tell their stories, to collect those oral traditions, uh, which is absolutely essential. But we just also need scholars and individuals producing works um, on the K through 12 level um, to teach this history. 
Um, for some people, I know it may seem painful, but I think for me, um, I am an example. I am a living witness. I would not have stayed in the Catholic Church without knowing this history. Um, yes, there is pain there, but there is also so much beauty. And I cannot stress this enough. What I found most remarkable when I was interviewing so many sisters, and I interviewed over 150 former and current African-American Catholic sisters, they told me the stories of their grandparents and great-grandparents, of grandfathers who at the new year would put all of their grandchildren in a circle and say special prayers over each of them, specific prayers. That history will be lost to us if we don't collect the oral testimonies of these women. Um, when we think about the strategies, again, one way is celebrating Black Catholic history, making sure that we're teaching sort of the histories um, of the African-Americans on the road to sainthood, but also just simply teaching African-American history and African-American Catholic history. So much of African-American history is actually Catholic history. Um, that's where it begins within our church. Um, I think we have to remember... Um, you know, as much as painful as it will be, what I what strikes me most is when we fail to tell the truth about African-American Catholic history, we also forget those non-African-American Catholics who are also fighting um, to make their church truly Catholic. So these priests, these white priests who ministered in African-American parishes, who become really champions of these young women who are in their who are in their parishes who want to go into religious life. And these men go be above and beyond to ensure that these young women will um, have communities that they can go into. Um, but I also want to say, like, in terms of just the remarkable nature of these stories, I want to give one example. And this is a woman from the Northeast. Um, she, her name was Yvonne Irvin. She came out of the Archdiocese of New York. Her father was African-American. Her mother was Puerto Rican. In 19, late 1950s, she is rejected admission into all the communities in New York City on the basis of race. She writes to a community in Kentucky and they ask for her photo. Um, and once they get her photo, they reject her. She is not deterred. She takes the next two years, becomes fluent in French, and then she applies to the French. Because that order in Kentucky, their mother house was in France. She applied to the mother house in France and was accepted. And then professed final vows in France. A couple of weeks after she professed her final vows, the community in France gets a report, gets a letter from Kentucky. They need someone to teach French in their high school. So who does her French superior send? She sends and she comes with her. She comes into the United States and Yvonne, Dr. Irvin become, she serves as a translator between the French superior who accepted her and the uh, American superior who rejected her. Wow. So there are these amazing stories there. And so what I encourage everyone to do is every archdiocese and diocese also needs to know their own story. In Connecticut, there are several African-American, there are several oblations to the Providence who come out of Connecticut. There is also a great uh, sister of Notre Dame, Ben Muir, sister Patricia Chappelle, who comes out of the, um, the diocese of New Haven, comes out of St. Martin de Porres there. There are plenty of sisters, um, and I, that's what I say with every diocese, know your own story. Um, mm -hmm. The last thing that I would say is, once you know your own story and get into your archives and collect those stories, you'll know what to do from there. Um, one example that I can give you are the Adrian Dominican sisters in Michigan. Um, I, they brought me into the community and what I say is that you all need to know your stories. What is the story of African-American sisters and other sisters of color in your community? And that is a community who went into the archive, they did the oral testimonies of their sisters of color and they could see exactly what happened, exactly what they did. And in response, 
they just gave a million dollars, uh, 500,000 to Xavier University of Louisiana, which is our nation's only historically black and Catholic university for scholarships and 500,000 to Michigan State University for scholarships for students in their department of African-American studies. Uh, it's an amazing and amazing opportunity um, for communities to think about one, to one, learn their histories, but also, if necessary, make reparations for those discriminatory histories. Right, right, right. Wow, wow. I didn't realize, oh, I would love to, to research those two sisters from Connecticut to begin the, the narration of our own story. But may I ask you this? Um, what about um, African-American black priests? Did they f experience the same discrimination, the same difficulties? Absolutely. So um, what we recognize, um, and again, among those on the road to sainthood, one of them is our first self-identified African-American priest, um, Father Augustus Tolton, or openly mm -hmm. Black. Um, we know that the Healy brothers are technically the first African-American priest uh, and also first Jesuit and bishop in the United States. And they also had three sisters who also went into religious life. Um, but there is great opposition to the ordination of Black men to the priesthood. Um, there are formal policies barring them from entering seminaries, which is why Father Augustus Tolton has to leave the United States um, to go and to train and to be ordained. Um, but even among the earliest generations of African-American men who are ordained to the priesthood after Augustus Tolton, you only have a handful who are allowed to minister in the United States. Many of them are sent to Africa or they're sent to Latin America and the Caribbean to start, become missionary priests, which is why the first um, black bishop of Ghana, right, of the Diocese of Accra is actually an African-American man who was a graduate of the SVD sem sem uh, seminary in uh, Bay St. Louis, uh, uh, Mississippi. Um, so there's profound opposition. What we recognize is that, again, despite Black sisters never making up more than one half of 1% of the national population of sisters, they educate over 50% of the first two generations of African-American priests. And so they are themselves identifying um, the vocations and nurturing them. And once you have the establishment of seminaries for Black men, first, um, the first all-Black seminary is the SVD Seminary in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. And then the Josephites who minister in the African-American community have their own very painful history of excluding African-American men, despite that they ministered in the African-American community. So it's very similar. Um, so without Black sisters, um, the African-American community would have been, were denied, they were denied formal religious leaders from their own communities. It's really not until the 1960s that we see um, a push from the African-American community to fight back against this, this history of discrimination, of denying mm -hmm. African-American mm -hmm. men from their communities to serve mm -hmm. in their parishes. Mm -hmm. You know, it just strikes me, just from an objective point of view, how destructive that is and how nonsensical it is. There's no logic to any of what we're talking about. So, I mean, certainly it's sinful to, to be acting in that way within our own church, it just it's it, it it just never ceases to amaze me, um, and therefore all the more reason we need to talk about it, right? Because history that is not remembered is repeated. Absolutely, <laughs> I think I think the other piece that I that I talk about in in my book and elsewhere, mm -hmm. not only in terms of just being destructive, but the number of hearts that were broken oh. of young mm -hmm. women and men. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we we can talk a lot about the experience of those who who made it right, who made a way out of no way. Mm-hmm. But we mm-hmm. we forget those lost vocations, um, and we really don't have a sense of how many vocations were lost to us. Um, in the 1940s, right after World War II, a white Jesuit priest named Father Raymond Bernard, young idealistic, started doing surveys of all the national communities of sisters, but also the seminaries to, to determine their anti-Black admissions policies. And so we have a sense of some of the numbers as a result of his time. Now, he's only in religious life from 1949 to 1959. He sort of leaves because he is so, he's heartbroken because he did not believe that his church one did it. And then he said, well, once we you know, make it clear that what's happening, the church is going to change its ways because that's what the church does. And he's heartbroken um, by 1959 and he leaves. Um, but, you know, there's a moment, there's a, a period between what, 1952 and 1953. I have to look at my book to get uh, be specific about the dates. But he found that just between one year, the church had lost over 300 vocations from black girls in one year. And so we're talking not just hundreds, but thousands of lost vocations. It has been amazing to collect the testimonies of African-Americans across the country, an African-American sister in Los Angeles who is the granddaughter of Gilbert Faustina, who was one of the founding members of the Knights of St. Peter Claver. Um, oh. they, she, when her family goes into California, they pass for white. And, um, and so when she went into her community, she passed for why she never told anyone. And then she finally told people years later, but she said, I wish you could understand how much was lost in California because so many black Catholics from Louisiana and Texas left those spaces and came into California and brought those gifts into the church. And they were not welcome. They were not received. And so many people left the church because of that. Right. Um, right. There are so many people who said, you know, we came from Louisiana, we went into Chicago, and then the, the parish school in our community would not accept us because we were Black. And one woman said, and that's when my grandmother became an atheist. She could not handle her church doing that to her children. And so we can talk about lost vocations, but also just lost faithful who are heartbroken at what happened to them because they did not, they could not believe that that happened. And so that's a piece of the story when we talk about destructiveness. And when we think about these numbers in the black, in the U S the numbers should never have been as low as they were. But if you understand that history of exclusion, that's why the numbers were so low. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So if I may, since you are so knowledgeable and have done all this research and in many ways an authoritative figure in, in assessing the situation, how, how do you see the state of black Catholicism in the United States today? What, what, how do you see the situation? I, I think it's in crisis. Um, now, certainly when we look at, um, the African Catholic community um, who are revitalizing mm-hmm. and bringing so much uh, beauty and faithfulness into our church. The African-American Catholic community, though, outside of the cradles, like Louisiana, the African-American Catholic communities are still there. They're still strong. But the question, of course, is if parishes are closing or being merged, if schools are not there, if the foundation, if the infrastructure is not there, 
people are going to hold on, but we're seeing the next generations not stay in a church where there is no infrastructure right. for them. And why should they? Because it requires an investment. It is an investment of people who have been uncommonly faithful to their church, um, whose labor and faithfulness built this church, and yet it has not been given back to them. We see the closings of offices for Black Catholics. And I, I want to say just something about the merging of parishes. It's one thing to merge two African-American parishes together. But what was very striking in some of my uh, oral history testimonies of, of Catholics, and I'll just give an example of Philadelphia, where I lived for three years. And I had asked an African-American laywoman, I said, I said, what's the largest Black parish in um, Philadelphia. And she named um, a Protestant church. And I said, what do you mean by that? She said, when they closed our parishes, people were so heartbroken. That's where a lot of people went. She said, if you want to find the largest community of Black Catholics, they are in this Protestant parish. And she said, if you, if you ask every one of them, if you push them against the wall to tell them what they are, they'll tell you they're Catholic. But that closing of the parishes and what happened in their situation was when they started closing parishes, they were asking people to go into parishes where they or their parents or grandparents had been mistreated in the past. And, oh, and it was painful. Right. right. You know, I, I, I may just share a vignette. When I was in Brooklyn, I was charged with merging parishes. That was, I was Vicar General at the time. And I went to a, a very small congregation at that point, there may not have been 40 people worshiping in the parish, but it was overwhelmingly black Catholics, African-American Catholics in particular. Anyway, so in the conversation, I was the one who would raise the proposition and create the collaborative committee and talk. And one elderly black woman stood up and said, she said, Bishop Frank, she said, I've come to know you these years. She said, and I love you dearly. She says, but what you are proposing, that is, that we would go to Parish X, which I'll leave nameless. She said, my grandparents were told not to cross the threshold because they were black. She says, so for me to go there is going to be extraordinarily difficult and painful to do. And I must tell you, Dr. Williams, I stood there with my mouth open and I wasn't quite certain what to say after that. And she came up and gave me a big hug because she realized I was, I, I, I don't know what to say. But that was my, my own personal introduction to this history that is not spoken about. It's not spoken about. And it's, it's, it needs to be for the, for the good of the church and for the renewal of the church. Because if we're going to renew the church, we have to renew it in truth, not in imagination. Yes. Right? Yes. yes. Amen. Amen. I, I say this and I think we truly don't. And, and again, that's why you tell these stories too. There is a, another, she was, She's a former member of the School Sisters of Notre Dame in Connecticut. Um, and she. All right, let's hear it for <laughs> Connecticut. <laughs> and she's from New York, but she said, you know, in the interview, she said, you know, my, my father is Italian American. Her father is Italian American, mother is African American. And she said, when her parents got married and they had her, you know, she said, my father took me to his parish in the Diocese mm. of Brooklyn. Mm. And the priest said, I will not baptize her. You go to St. Peter Claver. And she said, my father never walked back in that parish. He never went back. Uh, like, and so when we talk about that pain that is still there, mm -hmm. when we ask people, um, 
And so I think that's that's the piece, right? It's not just sort of the lack of infrastructure, the loss of churches, the loss of mm-hmm. vibrant schools that were doing everything mm-hmm. that they were supposed to do, the parishes that were there. Mm-hmm. It's also then when you ask people to go back to spaces and there has been no reconciliation. There has been no acknowledgement of the pain, no apology, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, no form of reparation to lead to reconciliation. That is where we're losing a lot of people. Yeah. See, that is why I think, if I may, stories are so powerful because to talk about this theoretically doesn't move the mind. It may move the mind. It doesn't move the heart. It certainly may not move the will because it's a theory. But when a theory has a face and a name and a history, it's a totally different reality. That's why the Lord only spoke in parables and stories. He didn't give us any theoretical conversations, Mm. right? It's the same thing. Um. Well, I thank you for sharing all this. It really has been quite an, an enlightenment. And I think for our listeners, it, this may, please God, provoke more interest in learning more about it. So in addition to your book, where else could like our listeners and myself go to to learn more about this and the stories? And I, I, Anything you recommend? I certainly would recommend Rachel Swarren's book that looks at the 272, those African-Americans who were sold by the Jesuits um, to settle their university's mm-hmm. debt. Um, which came out this year. I would also strongly encourage people to get a copy of Diane Matz Barrow's book. Um, she wrote one of the earliest histories of the Oblations of Providence during their earliest years, Persons of Color and Religious at the same time. Father Cyprian Davis's Landmark Study of the U.S. Black Catholic Community, The History of Black Catholics in the United States. Um, and then also Brian Massengill's Racial Justice in the Catholic Church, was, which I think is one of these seminal texts um, to, under, to begin to understand our church's history. Uh, maybe one other piece. I just ordered it on, on to, um, uh, yesterday. It's a new biography of Lydia Hamilton Smith, who was a Catholic um, member of the Underground Railroad. Um, a biography just came out on her, the first of, of which... Um, on the University of Pennsylvania Press. It's called, I think it's called An Uncommon Woman, but it's a biography of Lydia Hamilton Smith, uh, an African-American Catholic woman who was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Thank you. And, thank you. And then really quickly before we go to the break, so you said there are six black Catholics who are on the road to sainthood from the U.S. Yes. I know of uh, Father Augustus Tolton and Mother Mary Lang and... Uh, uh, Pierre Toussaint. Who are the other three? So Venerable Henriette DeLille, who was the foundress of the Sisters of the Holy Family in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, Sister Thea Bowman, servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also Julia Greeley, who was an African-American Catholic lay woman in the Diocese of Denver, or maybe it's the Archdiocese of Denver, who did, um, what did they call her? The Miracle of, of Denver. I can't remember what the name for her was, but um, who had this incredible ministry to um, the most vulnerable residents of Denver who had been born into slavery um, and then was a convert to Catholicism and, and, and had this extraordinary ministry there in Colorado. Amazing. Amazing. Wow. Okay, so we're going to take one more break and come back on the other side with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Bishop Caggiano has been speaking with Dr. Shannon Williams, the author of the book Subversive Habits, a history of Catholicism here in the United States for the black community and the African-American experience. We will be right back. Hey, this is Matt Sparazza from The Tangent. 
Each week on The Tangent, my co-host, Father Sam Kachuba, and I go on tangents to show how intertwined the Catholic faith and our culture really are. With guests like Scott Hahn, Dr. Greg Vitaro, Kristalina Everett, and so many more, The Tangent is always entertaining and informative. Check us out on Fridays at 12.30 on 103.9 FM, 1350 AM, anytime on the Veritas app, or wherever you get your podcasts. God bless. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. All right, Excellency, here is this week's listener question. It says, um, I've been seeing several auxiliary bishops being appointed by Pope Francis recently to dioceses in the United States. How does a diocese get an auxiliary bishop? Do you have to request one or does the Pope see that you are working too hard and sends help? Thanks for considering my question and thanks for your podcast. Well, you're welcome for the podcast. (laughs) And the truth is auxiliary bishops are appointed either because this historically has been one or a diocese is growing fairly dramatically and therefore there's a particular need or it's becoming perhaps um, diverse enough that there is a particular linguistic need or whatever it may cultural difference in our case i don't think our diocese is big enough to even request an auxiliary bishop but if someone's out there listening who thinks it's a good idea let me know (laughs) send them over (laughs) send them over all right anyway so if you have a question for bishop frank send it in on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Dr. Shannon Williams, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. We're, where can people go to get your book? Anywhere where books are sold. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your independent bookstore, um, and also um, via the website at Duke University Press. Okay. And it's called Subversive Great. Habits yes. by Dr. Shannon Williams. Right. I love the title. <laughs> it comes from this. I think the title's brilliant. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Williams, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for, you, for, for joining thank us Thank you today. so much. Thank you. Excellency, before thank we you. go, would you please give us your blessing? Of course. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen, we give you thanks, O Lord, for bringing us to the beginning of the holy days of Christmas, in which your Son comes as the Prince of Peace, to come to unite all your children, to allow your church to be the herald of the good news of salvation in him. We ask that you bless us and our listeners, bless Dr. Williams and her continued work. May the days of Christmas be a time of rest and refreshment and most especially a time of peace in those parts of the world that do not know peace. And we ask this as we ask all things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Merry Christmas to you all. Merry and Happy New Year. Well, I'll see you before, Steve. But, uh, happy New Year, Dr. Williams, too. Merry Christmas. Happy Thank New Year. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Williams. Thank you.